Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light and the CEO of the Robert Menzies Institute. The Institute is a Prime Ministerial Library and Museum devoted to upholding the legacy and vision of Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest serving Prime Minister. On Afternoon Light, we explore contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Hello and on today's episode of the Afternoon Light podcast, I'm talking to Dr William Stoltz, who is the Robert Menzies Institute's first ever visiting fellow. And he's also a senior advisor for public policy at the National Security College at the Australian National University. He has a PhD, an advanced master's of national security policy, all from the ANU, but he did start off his academic career here at Melbourne University doing the fabulous Bachelor of Arts. Welcome to the Afternoon Light Podcast, Will. Thanks, Georgina. I really appreciate uh, being back here in the old quad. It's um, kind of like walking through deja vu to be back around here, but it's <laughs> it's a beautiful spot and it's great to be recording with you in person. It is it is a really, really lovely spot. We are so grateful every day walking around here thinking, wow, this is our home. Um, today, we are talking about the research you've been doing for the Robert Institute, which is on the history of ASIS, the Australian Secret Intelligence Service, and it celebrates its 70th anniversary imminently mm. in a week's time. 13th of May, yeah. 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 Uh, so tell me, Will, let's start this conversation off um, at the very beginning. I think two oldest professions in the world are <laughs> prostitution and, and espionage and spies. So, <laughs> so, so tell me about the history of spying. Yeah, and, and not, not the other profession, no. No, no, no. <laughs> I'll save that for another podcast and probably another guest. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's such a big history and, as you say, different cultures and civilizations um, have had uh, have, have used spies and have engaged in espionage kind of since time immemorial. Um, when we think about it in the Australian context, though, we very much derive, I suppose, our tradition of these institutions from um, the British tradition. And, and the British tradition of espionage is a very old one and a, and a very storied one. I mean, when we think about um, what is typically referred to as secret services, these agencies or organisations organisations that are there to engage in foreign spying um, and what is typically called covert action overseas. Um, we can go back to Elizabeth I and the Secret Service operated by uh, her Secretary of State, Sir Francis Walsingham. So, you know, during during her reign, she was it was obviously a tumultuous period for, um, for British history or English history. Uh, <clears throat> and she very much leaned heavily on the Secret Service of Sir Francis Walsingham to prop up her power um, to head off assassination attempts and um, to support her foreign foreign wars and foreign engagements. Um, and that, that th- there's many things about that original secret service or one of those original secret services um, that is still kind of in the continuity in the DNA of organisations today. You know, even though um, the structure of government has changed quite a lot around that British tradition. Secret services still are first and foremost answerable to, you know, the executive um, heads of state and leaders of of um, the country. They still have that purpose of engaging in foreign spying um, and uh, covert action or, or secretly shaping operate uh, 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 secretly shaping events overseas. Um, and they still operate with special immunities and privileges to undertake these things that really only the most um, highest-ranking members of the government of the day can give them permission to do. So there's there's kind of this ancient lineage, I suppose, to what is um, in some ways a very modern organisation. But that that's the lineage that I suppose um, ASIS, MI6, and even organisations like the CIA and other kind of comparable agencies across the Commonwealth kind of have their... Um, their lineage to, yeah. And how did we get to having an Australian secret service? Mm. Well, Australia Australia developed its secret service, I suppose, significantly later than um, Britain. So the one that most of your listeners are probably familiar with is the Secret Intelligence Service, MI6. So that yeah. was founded, I think, in 1909, so just before the First World War. Um, and Australia doesn't create its secret intelligence service until 1952, so significantly later. Um, 
that said, Australia was engaging in espionage before then. So even before Federation, Australia's state governments were leveraging um, expatriates and commercial agents operating specifically in Pacific uh, parts of the region um, to, you know, understand what the French and other European powers were doing near Australia's borders. You often hear stories, you know, those Graham Greene novels of... um, Someone was working in import export, yeah. but they were actually that was their cover, obviously, for working as a as a secret intelligence operative. Yeah, and and yeah. And, and, and honestly, in, in those early days of Australian espionage, you know, um, just before the First World War, it was it was very much that it was commercial agents and businessmen who were um, working for Australian firms in the region who they had a commercial interest, but I suppose also a sense of national interest uh, in the intervention of the French and other powers in in, um, parts of the world that were important for Australia's economic and security prosperity. So they kind of volunteered information to the Australian government and you'd have premiers and prime ministers later who would actively kind of seek them out to provide information. So it happened in that very kind of ad hoc way. So they weren't necessarily being paid, these people. They Um, were undertaking legitimate business activities but on the side as as loyal expatriates were providing a bit of information. Yeah, yeah. It was, was, I suppose, fairly informal in that way. And it becomes more formalised, you know, obviously throughout the Great War the First World War, um, Australia does contribute to the intelligence effort um, of um, the of Britain and, and the Allies, but that's through the military first and foremost. Um, and then into the 1920s, uh, you have significant Australian figures who become, I suppose, much more plugged into the uh, British intelligence community. So you have uh, Richard Casey, who's dispatched by um, Stanley Bruce to be Australia's representative in London. And Richard Casey is embedded into the British Foreign Office and the Cabinet Office and works incredibly closely, actually, with the British Secret Intelligence Service and the, the, the senior public servants responsible for that that organisation. And so he sees firsthand, I suppose, the value that um, secret intelligence can provide to policymakers in the British system. Um, and he also gets a bit of a glimpse of... Um, what the British government is able to do in terms of what he refers to as black arts, um, you know, covert action and, and these sorts of activities. And for our listeners, we just should let them know that Richard Casey subsequently becomes a, a very notable external affairs minister in the Menzies government, among other portfolios, of course. And yeah. to this day, the um, building that the Department of Foreign Affairs yes. and Trade yeah. occupies in Canberra is called the RG Casey Building. So, yeah. Uh, long-term commemoration of his contribution yeah i mean he was he was a remarkable australian and this is this is one of the the fascinating things when you do look at menzies cabinet is that he was um really having to herd (laughs) a group of um very big egos and very big um (laughs) very big personalities people who were incredible statesmen in their own right um and and casey does go on to be quite seminal in in leading in the creation of the australian secret intelligence service when he um, both, I suppose, when he becomes federal director of the Liberal Party in the late 1940s, but then also um, as, a, as a cabinet minister after that 1949 election. But another key figure, of course, in the creation of ASIS is Alfred Deacon Brooks, isn't it? And, and he's, he's, a, he's a real upstart, isn't he? He's in his 20s coming up with this idea, pushing it with, mm. with Richard Casey. Tell me tell me about this. And this was outside of government too. Yeah. So it's fascinating. Al- Alfred Brooks is, is a really fascinating character. So he was Alfred Deacon's grandson, um, the second Prime Minister. Um, and Alfred Brooks served in um, throughout the Second World War mostly as an intelligence officer. And he worked for what was called the Allied Intelligence Bureau, which was a joint intelligence organisation pooling the intelligence resources of... Um, the Australians, the British, Americans and the Dutch operating predominantly in what is today Indonesia, Papua New Guinea and East Timor. So in those areas that were occupied by Japan. So he had great, a great deal of exposure to um, sabotage and propaganda missions in particular operating behind enemy lines. Um, so that's where he got a real f- taste for special operations as it was called then. Um, 
and he and because of his exposure to that part of the world, immediately after the war, he went and worked on the staff of H. V. Evatt, who was external affairs minister for Chifley, um, and worked quite closely in the efforts by the Australian government and the UN to establish an independent Indonesia. Um, and during that time, he suggested to H. V. Evatt that Australia should have a secret service, a secret intelligence service. H. Uh, v. Evatt, who was perennially kind of suspicious of British intelligence men, uh, didn't want a bar of it. Brooks, after that uh, career experience, returns to Melbourne um, and reaches out to Richard Casey, who's federal director of the Liberal Party, uh, and is employed by the Liberal Party as a as an, a special advisor for foreign affairs and subversive activities, which is a really weird uh, job <laughs> description for a, a party staffer to have. Yeah, um, and, and we're not just talking about a, a party. I mean, this is a party that had just been born. Yeah. Yeah. Only created in 1944. So you're talking about, what, 48? He starts working for... So Alfred Deacon Brooks starts working for Casey in 1947. 47, And right. I think leaves the employ of the Liberal Party uh, in 1949, I think, right. just before the election. So okay. he's, he's working for the party for a while. I think he works as a journalist at the same time and has a couple of other business interests. But he's beginning this conversation with Richard Casey and with Robert Menzies about the need for an Australian secret service um, even before they are in government, which is, which is quite weird uh, to have a political party, you know, thinking so deeply about these types of initiatives that they'll take into government. Um, now, whether, now, whether Richard Casey and Menzies had specifically decided that they would undertake to create this agency um, before they were elected is a little bit unclear. Right. But it's, it's certainly clear from the documentary evidence that... Um, Immediately once Menzies is elected, Brooks really um, steps up the vigour with which he's lobbying for the creation of ACES. Um, and it is it, it moves very quickly, you know. So um, Richard Casey, Menzies, Percy Spender and uh, Philip McBride, who's a defence minister, they meet in early 1950. So really only a couple of months after the Menzies government is elected, they're meeting to... Con- to figure out what ACES will look like. And they're doing this at the same time that the um, bill to ban the Communist Party is happening. So the, the decision to create ACES is really part of this larger national security agenda that the Menzies government comes into power with, um, which is very focused on you know anti-communist initiatives, but it is really focused on um, bolstering Australia's preparedness for a much more hostile world. Mm-hmm. You know, these men... They they seriously do believe that there is a possibility of a third world war, and they need they think they need to prepare Australia for that. So that's kind of the context that you need to have yeah. when looking at this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but as you say, it was very unusual. I mean, looking back now, to think that it was a political party that was driving this change rather than a decision of government to to you know, implement some sort of dramatic organisational change in the way Australia did business overseas or conducted itself overseas. Mm. But that said, it didn't exist in Australia in that formal sense, so it had to, the idea had to come from somewhere. But, but tell me, so the, the origins of ASIS in terms of, a, of an idea uh, are coming out of the brand-new Liberal Party in the late 1940s and then Menzies' government is elected in forty nine. And off it goes. Does that politicise ASIS then because of the, its origins story? Yeah, look, I think in a way it does because um, the Labor Party under Chifley had had a very rocky um, and really quite bad relationship with the British and the American intelligence communities because of the 1940s um, when there had been detected Soviet infiltration of the Australian bureaucracy. And um, as I said, you know, Evett was very suspicious of these types of agencies. I don't think he was particularly um, trusting that they always really had Australia's best interests at heart because of the experiences during the Second World War and the First World War as well. Um, So as a result, I think there's already this sense from the Labor side of politics that the people that populate intelligence agencies in the British system and then subsequently through organisations like ASIO and ACES, they are very much of the patrician class. You know, these are people who are, they've gone to the right schools, they're often not recruited through any formal process, they're kind of just referred to, you know, they're members of the right clubs and those sorts of things. Well, they're they're stories of of MI6 going to Oxford and Cambridge and just Mm. picking out 
suitable looking undergraduates and tapping them on the shoulder, having a quiet word and off, off they go after they graduate to, to join the Secret Service. Yeah, and, th- and that's not too dissimilar how um, that recruitment happens in Australia. You know, you've got a lot of um, former military officers and it's very much the officer class uh, who are coming out of intelligence roles in the Second World War, um, who are you know, members of the Melbourne Club and, and these sorts of organisations, uh, who are... They are part of that immediate circle of people who are pulled into um, these these quite small intelligence services as they start off. So, particularly ASIO and ACES, um, and and I think that that does set up this kind of cultural uh, mismatch or bifurcation from the very beginning for these agencies. Now, obviously, today we have very strong principles of bipartisanship, and the agencies employ a, a rich diversity of people. Um, and I don't think anyone would would accuse any of our intelligence services in Australia today of having kind of any political affinities in that regard. But back then, yeah, it was, it was very much um, a different story. Yeah, it's interesting too to then reflect on how ASIS and, and ASIO had their concerns about the Labor side of politics too um, and its connections to communist activities in Australia. So you wonder, was it, was it just a... a a backlash from how Australia was treated in World War Two and, and the disappointment Everett, Everett had in that? Or or was it that they were worried about what what might be uncovered and uncomfortable truths? Yeah, and, and I think it's, it's worth remembering in that context that the relationship of the Labor Party with the Communist Party of Australia and that outlook on the Cold War generally in the 1940s was very different to how it ended up being a decade or so later. You know, in the early, the immediate early years of the Cold War, Chifley is sceptical about this framing of, of Russia as being an enemy. Mm. You know, his view was, well, this was one of our great allies during the Second World War. We couldn't have won the Second World War without Russia. Yeah. Um, and so for, for him and for Evert to see this kind of rapid and quite jarring shift to cast Russia and the Soviet Union as being this great enemy. I, I think they felt that was a bit of an overreach and they hoped that there could be a different global order. And so I think that was, that was part of it, was that these men were somewhat slow to come to that, to that view that um, what the Soviet Union was engaging with around the world needed to be treated um, quite seriously because it was hostile. And you see that in the engagement that they have with MI6 and the CIA when this infiltration of external affairs and defence happens, is that Chifley and Evert are both quite... I, I think they're quite resistant to take it as seriously as MI6 and CIA wanted them to. So when they are being presented with the evidence that external affairs and defence have been infiltrated, um, you have Chifley kind of casting... Um, he's a bit sceptical about it if it's really as serious as the agencies are making out... Um, and then you also have Evert being very resistant to the demands that Australia create um, ASIO, our domestic security agency. And it's really not until MI6 and CIA say, Australia will be cut off from top secret information unless you do this. It's really that threat that generates the creation of ASIO. And as a result, you actually have in recently declassified correspondence, you have MI6 and CIA officers actually expressing a desire, a hope that the Liberal Party will come to power in 1949 because they believe that the Menzies government will be easier to deal with. Yeah. Well, don't, don't they say that, that Menzies is the more favoured partner in, yeah. in, their, in their analysis of the situation in Australia? And um, yeah, so again, you know, that sense that, that ISIS is, is quite politicized from its from its origins uh but also when you when you talk about that sort of early 50s period there there presumably on the part of Chifley and and, and then Evert was this um skepticism that if you're uncovering links between international communism and um people in the Department of External Affairs, Department of Defense that they that they potentially were just people who had left-wing views um, or were they genuinely partnered with, you know, international communism? Um, you know, mm. is this a partisan? Is is, a, is ASIS and um, security services is, are they part of a partisan play about getting rid of, you know, labour aligned people, left wing aligned people out of the public service, or or is it genuine security threats um, facing Australia? 
That's and that's and that's definitely the the suspicion that Labor has around um, ASIO. But it's worth remembering that ASIS is not actually um, it's kept secret from yeah. Parliament and therefore from the Labor Party for quite a while. Do you think? Th- do you think it was though? Do you think that that the Labor Party genuinely didn't know for for years that it didn't exist? So, if, especially for those first couple of years. So, when it's being considered in 1950, 1951, when it's created in 1952, and it goes through a little bit of a reorg, a reorganisation um, in 1954, certainly through that period, the opposition is not aware. I think they are briefed towards the end of the 50s, and at that point I think it is only the opposition leader and one or two other senior members of the Labor Party that are briefed. Certainly... Um, Parliament writ large doesn't know about it. So ASIS is created by an executive order, um, really from the Governor-General, but obviously at Menzies' advice, on the 13th of May 1952. And the reason that Menzies has created it that way is to keep it secret from Parliament because the other alternative, which some members of his Cabinet were pushing for, was that it be legislated from the very beginning to give it that parliamentary mandate to exist. Um, But Menzies was of the view that Parliament didn't need to know, that this was an agency to support you know, the, the Cabinet, it was an executive agency, um, and that its work was so sensitive that Parliament shouldn't be briefed on it. It's interesting Menzies took that view, given he, he was uh, such a, a devotee of the, of the sovereignty, the ultimate sovereignty of Parliament, that it was you know, the politicians were there to serve the people and they did that through the vehicle of Parliament and, and you know, the utmost respect must be given to Parliament, due process, that it is a forum for debate and discussion, um, but, but also that things should be done by the book, mm. uh, you know, but by the rule of law. So, so how, does, how, how do you think on reflection that creating ACES through an executive order subverting the oversight mm. of parliament and then I, I think um, the budget mm. funding for for ASIS was was actually hidden within the Department of Defense's budget so you didn't even have parliamentary oversight over how to fund our secret service I mean how do, how mm. do you how do you reconcile respect for the sovereignty of parliament with yeah the way ASIS was created. Well, I think that's it's quite right. You know, Menzies was a, you know, he was a de- devotee of Parliament. He was a real parliamentarian in the truest sense. Yes. But I think he was also someone that really understood and, and had quite a strong conviction for what the role of Cabinet should be and what Cabinet authority should be um, and what the, um, I suppose, entitlements of the executive was. And I think he regarded national security and particularly defence issues as something that resided very much in the purview of um, the executive, so him as the Prime Minister and his Cabinet. And so I think he just felt that it was, in in his view of the Westminster system, these were things that uh, should naturally reside with the imprimatur and the decision-making of um, the executive, and that, and that again is kind of aligned to this British tradition that these mm. special organisations they are serving the executive leadership of the country; they're not serving the parliament. Um, so I think that was kind of how he reconciled it, because he was he was very firm on how he operated cabinet. You know, he 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 did really want cabinet solidarity on a lot of the decisions that he'd make, but at the same time. He was also mindful of the fact that he was first among equals. He was, you know, he was the chief executive officer, so to speak. Was was there precedent for the executive order establishing ASIS in in the UK context? Um, I'm not sure from the top of my off the top of my head, actually. Yeah, I mean, that is obviously a different system because they weren't going through um, a governor general. But that, and as I say, their intelligence services kind of have a, a much longer. Mm. Um, lineage and relationship with the royals i would actually recommend for those listeners interested um there's a brilliant book um uh by rory cormack i think it's called the secret royals which which details the relationship of the royal family uh with the intelligence services that goes goes back all the way to queen elizabeth it's a fascinating read oh it would be yeah Yeah, yeah. so so we've got asus uh in 1952 created the first director general alfred brooks uh tell me how it how it evolved so it starts off quite small um, in those first years and leans very heavily on support from MI6 
And its operations are particularly focused on Australia's immediate region. And I suppose it's worth remembering that in the context in which it's created, Australia has the um, Malayan emergency happening up up north, the Korean War is evolving, and there's also still a lot of speculation about what trajectory Japan is going to take because Japan is still reconstructing after um, the Second World War and its politics is very volatile. Uh, and so I suppose these are the geopolitical focuses um, that generate um, the creation of ASIS. And Menzies and his ministers very much conceive of ASIS as not just being an agency to support Australia's national interests and security needs, but to be supporting the British system writ large. It really is what I would call an empire agency. They, after the Second World War, are really hoping to bed down British power in the Asia-Pacific. You know, obviously... Britain's global role takes a bit of a, a battering during the Second World War and you and you see a bit of a, a pullback of British power in, in the Asia-Pacific. And the Australian government under Menzies is trying to find ways to keep Britain invested in this region, but also making sure that Australia has a high degree of leverage over the decisions that are made about um, the future of this region. And so setting up an intelligence service that is supporting the role of MI6 and other friendly agencies is part of Australia actually contributing, um, making kind of meaningful intelligence contributions um, that can be leveraged by um, the rest of their allies and partners. So that's that's really the context in those early years. Obviously, um, you know, after you have the creation of the ANZUS Pact and f- about a decade later or so when you have Britain's withdrawal east of Suez, um, the role of ASIS pivots much more to supporting um, the CIA and American agencies in the region. But in those initial years, it's very much focused on supporting Britain. Yeah, that's interesting. And and were ASIS um, agents, where were they operating out of in, in that context around our near, near region? So ASIS's first uh, stations, as they were referred to, um, were in Tokyo, Jakarta and Bangkok. Um, and there's a couple of others that are added um, over the years, again, in Southeast Asia. But they're also operating out of um, British missions as well in those countries. So you have this, in particularly in those early years, you have this strange dynamic happening where you have ASIS officers operating with diplomatic cover out of Australian missions, but then you also have ASIS officers operating under British diplomatic cover out of British missions and being answerable to MI6. So Isn't it a bit obvious though? Aren't their accents a bit different? I would have. Oh well, yeah. But again, this goes to where you're recruiting people from. If you're getting uh. people from the right, the right suburbs of Melbourne and Sydney, they probably sound, and maybe parts of Adelaide, they probably do sound quite British. Indeed, indeed, indeed. But that, but that's really interesting. So, so despite the fact that we've we've signed ANZUS in fifty one, uh, that Australia is looking much more to the United States as its great and powerful friend, particularly after the experience during the Second World War and and the British withdrawing from Singapore and the fall of Singapore and and you know all those experiences that Australia have had and the disappointment with mm. with Britain really leaving it feeling quite abandoned, Australia is still through this new secret service working to preserve British power in our region, mm. um, despite the, let's, let's be honest, the evidence that it's, that it's diminishing pretty fast, especially with the, you know, the decline of empire and, and then you have the, the emergence of the Commonwealth. Mm. Yeah, but I suppose it, it's worth remembering that to men like Casey and, and Menzies, who are really, they are quite Anglo-Australian, it perhaps wasn't as obvious to them. No. You know, when they're looking at a map of Australia's region, there's a lot of Union Jacks, you know. There's a lot of, there's a lot of parts of that near region that aren't yet, you know, they're still, they're still colonies and settlements of Britain. Even and, these, and these events don't happen overnight either. No, these are, these no. Are slowly developing trends and, uh, yeah. And America's, America's commitment to the region is still in in the early 50s is still a, a bit of a coin toss you know yeah. you, you obviously you see um, a significant military commitment to the the Korean war and that's while that's a very worrying international crisis that is a very reassuring thing to the Australian government to see America um, committing in that way um, but the long-term staying power of America in the region is kind of still up for debate in the early 50s because it's worth remembering that prior to the Second World War, uh, the only real um, 
permanent American presence in the region is is in the Philippines. Beyond that, they're not really in in our neighbourhood. No, I guess in Japan as well, mm. the further north. But uh, yeah, no, that that's true. It was a, it, as you say, it was a coin toss whether the US would stay actively engaged in the Eastern Pacific, South mm. Pacific, or whether they would go back to their you know traditional isolationist approach. Yeah, which, their Monroe you know, doctrine. Had, had in the past served them as they in their mm. eyes at least uh, pretty well. So so tell me, Alfred. Brooks is leading this new secret service. Um, it's operating out of Jakarta and Tokyo. And uh, how does he work with other departments and agencies? Because it's not straightforward and, and yeah. anything new in the public service is going <laughs> to ruffle fe- feathers. I mean, you and I have both been in the public <laughs> service. So anything new is challenging. And, uh, and he has a particular style, doesn't he? He's yeah. used to working with the top and uh, he doesn't necessarily bother with, um, <laughs> bother with the usual protocols and processes of a, of, of a bureaucracy. And, and this is a small bureaucracy in those days, much smaller than it is today. Oh, yeah. No, it's yeah. a very tight-knit, elite group of people. And, and you're right, Alfred Brooks, I mean, he's incredibly young when he's... He's 32 when he's That's made director it's, in, it's It's absurd, really. Yeah. Um, and he has a very deep personal friendship with Richard Casey and he's, and he's quite friendly with Robert Menzies as well. And so he actually, he leans very heavily on those personal relationships, both to get ACES set up, but then in those early years of operating it. And that immediately causes tensions um, with the heads of the external affairs and defence department um, in particular, who... You know, these are secretaries. They are more technically more senior than him as a as an agency head, and yet he's he's going round them. You know, he's going straight to Menzies. He's going straight to Casey and other other ministers. Uh, and and it's, it, ASIS is reporting to the prime minister's department then at this stage. So initially, it is it is under the defence department, yeah. but he reports to um, a subcommittee of cabinet, which comprises yeah. the Prime Minister, External Affairs Minister and the Defence Minister. Mm. Um, and that causes tensions because even though ASIS is funded by the defence budget and it's within the defence department, it's using diplomatic cover in missions operated by external affairs. So there's a whole lot of messy um, aspects to its structure in those early years. And it kind of, it starts off in defence, then it goes under external affairs. Um, but these tensions with Brooks um, and Arthur Tang in particular, as so well he's as... The he's the Secretary of External Affairs. He's the Deputy Secretary of External Affairs, but he opposes he he opposes ACES from the beginning, as does the Secretary, Alan Watt, um, and the Secretary of uh, Defence. Who so there's these uh, these very large um, personalities, these huge mandarins of the public service uh, are not not on board with ACES's structure from the very beginning. And then Alfred Deacon Brooks's personality they find particularly grating. And um, the the real straw that breaks the camel's back though is in 1957, I think, when um, Brooks goes to DC to Washington. Uh, and meets with Secretary of State John Foster Dulles and his brother, the CIA director, Alan Dulles, without consulting external affairs and defence, which anyone who's listening to this who might be an agency head today, I think I think they would be shuddering at the thought <laughs> of behaving in such a unilateral and, way. And why, why did he not consult them? He just thought they would try and stop him? Well, this is, this is a little unclear. So what's... What we know is that one of the things he discussed with them was the prospect of America basing long-range nuclear missiles in Australia. So a very, very sensitive proposition. And it's quite possible that Richard Casey sent Brooks over to talk about this matter and deliberately didn't want other people in the bureaucracy to know about it. And this type of what we call... This is referred to today as intelligence diplomacy. So this does happen where agency heads in intelligence agencies are leveraged by the government of the day to undertake kind of sensitive diplomatic missions. But the idea that you would do it without consulting at all the head of your foreign service and the head of your... Well, particularly the head of defence. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) If you're talking about... Nuclear missiles. Yeah, surely that would have <laughs> maybe had some relevance to the defence portfolio. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so um, after uh, after defence and external affairs learn of this, they they disregard that as just an act of roguishness that really 
it can't be a bridge be. too far. It is a bridge too far, and after that happens, there is a really concerted move to abolish ACES. So, um, and Richard Casey, who had been a really strong proponent of the Secret Service for so long, actually starts to waver. So, uh, Alfred Brooks says much later that he felt that Casey, after becoming External Affairs Minister, suddenly became very nervous and paranoid about the fact that he was responsible for these intelligence officers. Had he gone a bit native? He'd sort of be- fallen into the clutches of the Department of External Affairs and they had, you think, worn him down. Potentially, <laughs> I think that was potentially part of it, but I think it may have also been the fact that Casey was... Um, I think Casey always had in the back of his mind that he might be able to be Prime Minister one day. You know, he and Menzies had an interesting kind of competition and rivalry there. I think they respected each other deeply, but there was a bit of a rivalry because Casey was a huge personality and a brilliant politician in and of himself. Um, And I think Casey felt that as external affairs minister responsible for these intelligence, these spies operating overseas with diplomatic cover, he suddenly became concerned that if they were exposed and there was a diplomatic incident that he would be fired, that it would be the end of his career. And so there is this quite sharp shift in Casey's support for ACES. And so you have this extraordinary meeting uh, in 1957 uh, where Menzies isn't present. So Menzies is recovering from surgery and there's this cabinet meeting um, where they agree to abolish ACES. Uh, at, at at the advice of the heads of defence and external affairs, that's extraordinary. Which is quite and and yeah. it's not. No one in, in the in the documentary evidence I've read, no one explicitly says we did this meeting while Robert Menzies was under the knife because we knew that if he was there, he wouldn't back it. But it is, the timing is interesting. The idea that you would take such an extraordinary yeah. proposal to cabinet uh, and and have the prime minister not there is pretty. Um, unusual Um, and essentially what happens after this decision is made is a flurry of activity in Canberra, London and Washington to save ACES. So in Canberra you have Charles Spry who's the the head of ASIO and a good friend of Brooks. Um, He's aware of all the pain and and difficulty that happened in the 1940s um, to get ASIO set up and he's immediately um, advocating to save ASIS and he he advises on a whole lot of structural changes to its operations, but also concedes that Brooks probably has to leave as Director General. Uh, so he's he's advocating for ACES in Canberra. In uh, Washington, you have um, Percy Spender, who's now, uh, at, at this point in time, he's the ambassador to the US. He's prevailed upon by the State Department, who, who advised that they have grave concern over the prospect of ACES being abolished. And then you have um, the CIA... Uh, directly lobbying Casey. So they're going out and visiting Casey at his farm and, and really putting the hard word on Casey to save ACES. And then you also have the um, the, the deputy head of uh, MI6 come out to Canberra. So he does a, a blitz of the public service in Canberra and, again, he lobbies Casey directly uh, to save ACES. And the message from the CIA and MI6 is the same message that they delivered to Shifley and Evett in the 40s over ASIO, which was... If you get rid of this agency, you will lose access to top secret information. That you know, you're, you're out of the family essentially, um, and it's that proposition um, which really brings Menzies back to the cabinet. Uh, now he's recovered, goes back to the cabinet and says, "We're not doing this. No. We will keep ASIS, but it will be under a different leadership and with um, structural changes." And he ends up issuing a, a new charter for the agency that kind of. Um, clarifies its role a bit more. But that's it for, for Brooks. That's the end of his his time as head of um, ACES and he goes on to a, a new and interesting career doing other things. But Yeah, yeah. completely outside of government. Yeah, yeah. 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 Mm. Do you see then that ACES had sort of two lives? So it had that, that first, what, um, seven years or so uh, and, then, and then after that a kind of completely different iteration? Was it? Was it a very different agency after that well, initial mm. existential drama? Well, it's interesting. ACES has several of these existential moments throughout okay. its history. Yeah. So this is there's actually three director generals of ACES who were fired. 
So, which is a pretty unusual, pretty bad track record actually for a government agency. So it it has multiple run-ins, but um, throughout the Menzies era, um, it it becomes much more stable after after Brooks leaves and. Um, it's worth remembering that all this tumult around Brooks's leadership is really in the first early years of ASIS. So there's a lot of teething issues about, as I mentioned, who you know, which department does it sit under? How does it fund its funding work? How is it responsible to cabinet? Because it's quite an unusual agency. So it does take a couple of years to actually figure out how to run this properly. And and Australia has its own kind of unique Westminster sp- system that requires it, um, you know, a few alterations in a trial and error, I suppose, to figure out how an agency like this works. Of course. But under the, yeah, under the um, remainder of the Menzies government, it still retains this this what I call the kind of two hidden hands, one for stealing secrets, so espionage, and one for shaping events, covert action. It still has at its core these two functions um, throughout the Cold War. So, you know, there's historians kind of speculate and debate around um, ASIS's involvement in affairs in Indonesia, particularly um, uh, things like Konfrontasi and the the civil strife in Indonesia in the 60s. Um, there's, there's a lot of speculation about well, not always speculation, study, good good academic study about um, ASIS's role in the Vietnam War and these sorts of things. So it plays an active role throughout the, the Cold War, um, but certainly ASIS has its kind of next existential crisis when you do have a change of government um, and you have uh, Whitlam come to power uh, in the 70s. Um, Whitlam is briefed on ASIS prior to... Um, coming to power, but um, ASIS is still a secret organisation from yes from yep. public. Yeah, uh, so it would have come. As, he probably had a good idea that it existed yeah. by that stage. You'd say, but what's well, interesting, you know, there was um, there was stories that when Billy McMahon became prime minister, he was convinced there was multiple ASISs. Because there were because it had it had so many euphemisms, there were so many different names referring to the agency, and he was so kind of suspicious of these spooks that he was convinced that someone was keeping an agency secret from him. Oh right, <laughs> <laughs> but they weren't. No, no. no. <laughs> so so Whitlam comes in in seventy two. It's the first time um, there's been a Labor government in Australia since nineteen forty nine. So you know that's a generation of liberal governments uh and and you know for the public service that's a big big change uh too dealing with the different side of politics and that is another existential moment for ASIS where it has to justify itself and potentially change direction yeah so there's two tensions immediately um with Whitlam so there was um the fact that uh you know it's a difficult relationship with Indonesia in, in the 70s, and um, Whitlam is very concerned about ASIS's operations in Timor, uh, and he gives the instruction to, I think it's Bill Robinson is the Director General at the time, that ASIS is not to have intelligence officers on the ground in Timor. He doesn't want, I think the phrase is, he doesn't want Australian spies on the ground. And ASIS kind of take a very technical interpretation of what that means. And so they don't have Australians on the ground, but they continue to use um, agents. They have, yeah. they have locals who they engage as, as intelligence sources on the ground. Yeah. And when Whitlam finds this out, he regards that as a complete, um, you know, they've, they've completely disregarded his instructions. So yeah. that, is, that, is one, that is the big, the big um, frustration for Whitlam. But the other, the other one is that um, you have in Chile at the time, um, the CIA are running operations against the Allende uh, government and the CIA are evicted from um, Chile at the time and they hand over their, uh, their intelligence sources, their agents, to ACES at the time. And when Whitlam gets wind of this, he's just like, why on earth are you operating in Chile? He doesn't, he does, doesn't regard that as an activity that um, ACES should be doing and he instructs them to cease that activity and, and it takes a little while for, those, um, for that station to be closed down and he feels that it, um, again, he feels that he's... They're he's, shuffling their feet he's, a bit. Yeah, they're shuffling his feet and, and they're shuffling their feet and that the instructions weren't followed properly. So he sacks Bill Robertson on the spot. There's, you know, the stories that he had a, you know, shouting match with him and, and just sacked him on the spot. So that's the second kind of existential moment for for ASIS then under, under Whitlam. And Whitlam really does pe- uh, pull back 
ASIS's covert action function at that time. He he says, um, you know, the the espionage function can continue, but this this function of um, engaging in special operations overseas, the only contingency in which ASIS can undertake that activity is wartime. He essentially says you can maintain a a kind of um, a residual kind of auxiliary, you know, preparatory kind of capability for that, um, but. It's only really in case we actually end up at war in, in a wartime context that that's to be used. And it takes about another 10 or so years for ASIS's functions to sort of be rehabilitated to what they were pre-Whitlam, doesn't it? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the, um, the Labor government under, like, jumping forward under Hawke um, gives them a little bit more scope. But there is... Gareth Evans makes some remarks in Parliament um, where, again, he kind of rules out what is referred to as political action. So he rules out ASIS um, engaging in in political interference. So that kind of stays the posture um, for quite a while. And it's really not until... And, and what's the basis of that, do you know? What, why does Gareth Evans take that view? Well, I think that there's a... Sh- at that period of time, you're in the later stages of the Cold War and there's a perception that, you know, Australia is aspiring to this kind of constructive internationalism and wanting to be a good global citizen, that it's really not appropriate that Australia be, um, you know, maintaining a capability to engage in the politics of other countries. I think that's the view that the the Hawke government takes at that time. Um, uh, and obviously by that point in time, ASIS is publicly acknowledged. So, so in 1977, Fraser does tell... Uh, parliament that ASIS exists. Um, it's and kind a, of an open people, secret at that I was going to say, are people shocked? I mean, the public's probably a little bit surprised. Yeah. They've had their fill of James Bond movies. By yeah. Then, so, they're, you know, <laughs> they're familiar with the concept. Yeah, I think that... in the British context. Well, exactly. And, and there'd been... I think there'd been sufficient rumours. I think there had been a couple of newspaper reports... Um, you know, the agency that must not be named type thing. So I don't think it was a complete surprise um, and certainly people in the public service would have been would have been pretty aware of it. But the reason um, Fraser undertakes to tell Parliament is um, because that's one of the recommendations of the first Hope Royal Commission um, in the 70s, which is a Royal Commission that Whitlam sets up, um, not so much just because of his run-in with ASIS, but because of a whole lot of issues with ASIO as well. The Whitlam government has a lot of a lot of difficulties with the intelligence services that, that he decides... And, that and their legacy issues from the, the 50s, do you think, in the end? Well, they do go to this... this um, cultural um, identity of the agencies. You know, I think Whitlam, when he comes to power, there is a lot of suspicion on behalf of the the Labor Party um, of whether ASIO is really properly um, focusing its resources on the things that are really the great threats to Australia's security because ASIO is, because of the Cold War, is very fixated on communism. Um, But in the 1970s, you have the bombing of the Yugoslavian consulate here in in Melbourne, um, and there's this sense that um, there might be foreign actors uh, from the Yugoslav intelligence services also engaging in Australia, and there's and the Labor Party feel that uh, that ASIO may have dropped the ball on this threat uh, because of they that kind of ideological obsession with communism, um, and that's when you get the Murphy raid. So Lionel Murphy, the Attorney General. Um, famously, on his own volition, gathers up a whole bunch of Commonwealth police officers and raids the ASIO offices in Canberra and in Melbourne because he he believes that ASIO is not properly briefing him as the Attorney General, that they're withholding information. So this is the kind of great breakdown of the relationship between the Whitlam government and the intelligence services. So you have on the one hand, you know, those crises of confidence I mentioned with ASIS and then you have um, this crisis with ASIO. And this is what prompts Whitlam... Um, before the dismissal, uh, to to put make the decision to conduct a royal commission, and he appoints um, Robert Marsden Hope to undertake this royal commission into intelligence and security, and that royal commission is carried on through the Fraser government as well, and Fraser begins to implement the recommendations of the royal commission in the late seventies. And of course, Whitlam's view of of communism and and communist powers, like like China, was very different from predecessors, his liberal predecessors. So he's he's taking his government takes quite a quite a kind of dovish uh, view of of China. I mean, obviously 
visits China before he becomes prime minister and then recognises um, PRC as, mm. as, as China um, when, he, when he comes to power in 72. So you've, you've got a real change in Australia's strategic posture and engagement with, with what were, you know, formerly considered the arch enemies of liberal democracies. So that would have been quite challenging for the security services uh, to have a very different brief, a uh, very different direction. And, you know, it can be, as we know, there can be a little bit of a, an episode of Yes Minister from time yeah. to time. <laughs> well, and not just on China. I mean, also on yeah. Indonesia, right? I mean, yeah. um, uh, Whitlam was, uh, really wanted to see a constructive and much more friendly relationship between Australia and Indonesia. So, you know, throughout the kind of 1950s under Menzies, there was a perennial suspicion that, you know, while Indonesia had this policy of non-alignment, that Indonesia could fall to communism or become aligned with the communists. And so Indonesia is a much more... Um, is a much bigger target for Australian intelligence during the 50s and the 60s. But Whitlam, um, you know, he wants to see... uh, Australia have a much more um, constructive and I suppose equal equal relationship with its neighbours in Southeast Asia. And so he prioritises a better relationship with Indonesia, which is part of his reasoning about telling ACES to get out of Timor um, because he... And this is this is you know one of the kind of the great controversies of Whitlam's government. I mm. mean, he kind of makes the decision in a way to put it kind of crudely to kind of throw Timor under independence yeah. under the bus in favour yeah. of a stronger relationship with Indonesia. So there's a there's yeah he does come to power at a time when there's um, I guess a few turning points in Australia's approach to the world, which I think you're right. There's there's extent to which the intelligence services are a little slow to adapt and calibrate themselves to that. Well, an absolutely fascinating discussion and I am very much looking forward to you participating and presenting at our conference in November this year where you'll talk more about this really important topic and, uh, and I hope we can, we can get you on to talk about further research in the future too. So thank you very much for joining me on Afternoon Light. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.